welcome to the Enlorm podcast series, a series that focuses exclusively on patients now referred to as having nanorare mutations. I'm Stan Crook, and I'm the founder, chairman, and CEO of Enlorm. Enlorm is a nonprofit foundation that I initiated in January of 2020. Our mission at Enlorm is to take advantage of the technology we created at Ionis Pharmaceuticals, Anisense Technology, or ASO Technology, to discover, develop, and provide experimental ASO treatments to nanorail patients, and to do that for free for life. And before I begin our discussion, I do want to remind everyone that our first annual colloquium for patients with nanorail diseases is October 12th in Boston. It's being hosted by our uh, founding donor, uh, Biogen, and we look forward to seeing many of you there. And of course, if you can't attend in person, we hope you'll join us by Zoom. We think this is going to be a highly informative and valuable meeting, and we're pleased with the level of interest that we've received to date. Today, we're doing something a little different. Our special guest is Brady Huggett. He is the enterprise editor at Spectrum, and he is, I would say, the most respected reporter, business reporter. Uh, who has covered the biotech industry for a long time. (laughs) As some of you may recall, Brady created a podcast series on Ionis and our progress in creating Anisense technology that was a part of the Nature Biotech podcast series. So Brady, welcome. Great to see you again. Always nice to chat with you. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to this. I've got some um, things I'm dying to ask you. (laughs) And Brady and other Nature Biotech alumni, as well as current Nature Biotech editors, will be joining us at the colloquium. So we look forward to seeing you and Andy and your other colleagues at that meeting as well, Brady. Oh, great. So I'm going to sit back and let you run this interview and look forward to it. The first thing that I wanted to ask you, um, and this ties into Enlorm too, is, and, and you and I have actually talked about this before, but you know, before Enlorm, you had this long, rewarding and, and maybe exhausting career trying to get antisense oligonucleotides to work in the human. And I think it was quite a journey. I wanted to ask you, though, like, why was it that you decided to pursue antisense as a technology anyway? This was back when it was really nothing more than an academic paper and some chatter at scientific meetings. So why antisense? In 1980, when I was 35 and five years out of my residency, having created the first broadly successful on a cancer program while advancing to full professor at Baylor, I decided to take the opportunity to be president of R&D at what now is GSK. That was a very heady time for me, very exciting to be so young and in such a position of responsibility. You know, by 1983 or so, I was very confident that we were doing the right things and that what we were doing might have an impact well beyond GSK and might change you know, the way R&D was done in the industry. Mm -hmm. But in that year, I also came to a conclusion that the industry was dying and that it was going to get worse. The only way the industry would be able to respond would be to constantly increase prices, especially of innovative new drugs. And of course, we've all witnessed the spiraling costs of new medicines. And yeah, it wasn't particularly insightful. I think that became commonly accepted wisdom in the industry about the same time. But where I differed dramatically with others was what I thought the cause was and what I was going to have to do if I was going to act on it. I believe that the cause was the extraordinary inefficiency of small molecule drug discovery. That's captured by the old adage, change a methyl, change the drug. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. Which is sadly as true today as it was 120 years ago when it was coined. And that really means every time you make the slightest change in a small molecule, you're beginning anew. You never get to learn anything really that you can then use to enhance your success rate. Frankly, if I didn't know small molecules work, I'd say they can't. It's just impossible. In 1988, it was one of those times when there was a big swell of interest in venture capitalists in investing in big ideas. Gene therapy was still garnering a great deal of support. Monoclonals were moving from not working to humanized monoclonals. And this was a new idea and a bunch of others that were pretty trivial ideas, really. I felt that the only thing worth pursuing was innocence. And the reason ties to the way I think about drugs. The most useful way to think about drugs is they engage in collision-dependent information transfer events with biology. The reason I like that is it focuses you on what I think are the key issues. <laughs> How much information is in your drug? What is the chemical language of the drug? What's the language of the target or receptor? How well is the grammar of that language understood? And then how efficient is the information transfer process? If you look at it that way, it's so obvious. A small molecule, you have, by definition, 500 Dalton's worth of information. That's a speck of salt in an ocean of biological information that it has to sift through to identify the target you want it to. So you can think mm-hmm. of information as sort of information that supports speciation, identification of the desired target from all the others. Monoclonals will step forward, a little more information. Oh, and on, small molecules are designed to bind to proteins, and we still don't understand the language of proteins well enough to, to take a primary sequence of amino acids. Protein language, is, it's like English. It's 20 characters. It's complicated grammar. And even if you know the sequence, and even if you think you might even have a crystal structure, you still can't predict what that structure is and where your drug's going to bind. You can't do it. Frankly, I doubt you ever will be. Monoclonals was better. They carry more information, but it's limited to an epitope. So yep. the rest of that molecule is just a drug delivery device, which is pretty lame drug delivery device. You know, you're still interacting with proteins, but a step forward. When you move to nucleic acids, it's astonishing the difference. First of all, you have a language that's as simple as Morse code, four characters, three-letter code to define. You're oligonucleotide is exactly the same chemistry, and your drug is oligomeric, which is the solution. Polymers were the solution to information content that evolution created. You can actually design your drug to the length that you want to assure that it has the information it needs to identify a single site in a single RNA in this sea of RNA. It's just completely different. I knew at the time that everything that had been published was wrong, that the probability of success was too close to zero to even measure be 20 years and $2 billion before I knew. <laughs> Chris Gabrielli, first VC, disputes that I said it quite that bluntly, and he's probably telling closer to the truth than I. Yeah. But I knew what I was taking on. If I could do it, just think about how it would change everything. And it did. That's a long-winded answer to what sounds like a simple question, but it's all about information content. And drugs are about information content and how You build the information in sufficient to do what you want in a a sick person and not do the many millions of other things 
that it could easily do that would actually do harm. Yeah, we've talked about that. The specificity is one thing that really attracted you. But the idea, as you just said, like the chances of success, you know, you said almost zero. Why would you say, well, then that's the thing that I want to do knowing that? I mean, and actually, Stan, is it because like, you, you know, you as you said, you're in your 30s and you thought I have my full career to focus on this? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that turns out to be a critical component of the decision, right? I was, I think at that time, 43 or 44. And I knew I had vast stores of energy and perseverance. It really boiled down to the value of what I want to do with my life. I felt that only this investment would actually change the industry and make it more efficient. And we'd be able to change the whole tenor of the industry from one of utter failure constantly, one out of 10,000, maybe one out of 10 million small molecules ever work. And you change that equation, you change everything. And actually, it turns out the technology met every one of my hopes. It was still pretty much a bargain. And I think it was more like 25 years and $3 billion before I could convince the rest of the world. You compare that to monoclonal or gene therapy, it's astrophysically inexpensive. <laughs> and yeah. It was about value. And in, in addition, I felt I was created to do it. I had trained in RNA biochemistry. I loved RNA. Even as a student, I thought it makes much more sense to make drugs out of RNA. It just does. Here I was trained in exactly the way that would needed to be trained, a pharmacologist by nature with a ton of drug discovery and development experience and a lot of organizational experience in recognizing what needed to be in place to make an organization a great organization of innovation. So it was made for me. It was the highest value thing I could do with my knowledge and career. I was actually attracted to the fact that nothing was known. You can look at that pessimistically or, you know, me being an optimist, I thought, well, go golly, maybe we'll get to write the textbook. <laughs> and we did. Almost like here's a chance to do something big and break new ground. That's exactly. Why. And why waste your time on a little dream? And why get in a field that's already maturing like monoclonals or overinvested and vastly overrated as in gene therapy when I could do something that I knew if it worked, it would represent a fundamental advance in healthcare. Who could ask for a better dream than that? So then you spent 30 years really at the helm of ISIS that which then became Ionis trying to perfect this antisense dream to make it more efficacious, to make it less toxic, to make it safer in the patient. And then, you know, when you retired from Ionis, I think you actually wanted more time to read, to write actually, you know, sort of take it easy a little bit, but that hasn't been the case. And, and I'm wondering why you know, after that length of a career, you decided to start something like Enlorum. I actually didn't want to do it. Figured I'd stay as chairman, continue to do science, some scripts I wanted to write, books I wanted to read. And yeah, I wanted to go back to poetry. I'm one of those nutty guys who loves poetry. But I realized I could do it, that I knew the technology. I was the right person to do it. There was no one else I thought was capable of really doing it the right way. And these patients are dying and there's no hope for them. And I didn't have a choice if I wanted to consider myself a moral person and honor, you know, the commitments you make when you're a physician. I take the Hippocratic Oath as a thing I signed up for, for life. The truth is, I think retirement is sort of a, an artifice of the industrial revolution, work should be a part of life. Mm -hmm. I didn't ever think I'd retire. <laughs> I just didn't think I'd work seven days a week, 
every week as I have. But that turns out like every other phase of my life. It's exceeded anything I knew to dream in terms of the return to me, in terms of the value I experience from doing this. I'm so happy I did it. It's joyous to me. ISIS and IONIS had been this for-profit entity, and and Lorem you set up as a non-profit. And I wanted to ask why you made that decision. I I didn't think there was any commercial solution that could be done for a group of patients that would number less than 30 in the world. I still don't. I'm committed to health equity, and I also didn't want misguided people, inexperienced in innocence, developing treatments for only the people who could afford to get them. I really am angry about that. I think that's wrong. The prices of drugs you're talking about? No, I'm talking about only the patients with these mutations who are able somehow have a family or some way to raise the money Uh treated. I think that's offensive. I think healthcare, at the minimum, healthcare should be equitably distributed. I didn't like what I was saying. And I also didn't like the amateurs who were dabbling in antisense who I thought were dangerous. And so I wanted to do it right. I wanted it to be an equitable distribution of effort as much as I can. And I wanted to do it systematically and in a fashion that would scale to meet what I knew would be the need. So let me ask, this is this goes along with it being a nonprofit. We just saw in the New York Times, the New York Times wrote an article about Gilead and suggested that some issues around the patents for its HIV franchise, the company was maybe making decisions that were based more on shareholder value or profits than patients, right? That's what the article stated. And I'm wondering, like, as Enlorm being set up as a nonprofit, that tension is taken out of the equation. I'll tell you this, it's a much easier sell than trying to sell antisense technology to people who had already considered it insane. The mission is clear, simple. There are no abstractions. There are no compromises that you need to make. There's only one group of people I have to please. That's my patients. So it is easier. I believe since the day I walked in the industry, I work for the patient. I'm in this joyous situation in which if you do the best thing you can for the patient, generally it's going to be the best thing over the long haul for shareholders. Every time the industry has gotten in trouble, it allows the abstraction of science and business to get in the way of focusing on what their customer needs and the special responsibilities that our industry has. Every significant scandal, every significant problem reflects a loss of focus on the patient and the need to milk every dollar from every small molecule because you never know when you're going to have another one that works. And Anasense changes all that. You don't have to get every dollar from every drug because you know you can make another one tomorrow. And then and Lorem clarifies it even more and gets rid of all the abstractions. Like I said at the pre-Gallion, I think the heart of our industry is truly noble. I really do. And Lorem is the most poetic expression of the heart of our industry that you could have. You know, I have the privilege of actually living that. It is simple. If you don't always ask, is this in the interest of patients, you will get in trouble. It will happen. It's a slippery slope and it, it is guaranteed. And you make compromises or you pursue indications that you know you shouldn't. You try to extend the drug to indications where you haven't proven it work. You try to make a decision that's more patent-related than patient-related. You get in trouble. If you do that, you deserve the trouble you get into. The idea that the message from Enlorm is very clear. I mean, I understand why you're able to convince Biogen and Ionis to come on as partners, right? You have a long-standing history with those two companies. How are you able to convince other people, whether it's CROs or universities or whatever it is, to come on and be a partner with Enlorm? Lorem. Financing in Lorem is the same as financing a biotech company. 
I mean, we're just a biotech company that's deliberately non-profitable. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. The vast majority of biotech companies are non-profitable. They just don't mean to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So the lessons of financing biotech are the same. You have to think about it in phases and what assets you have to sell and to whom you are selling, right? It took me a while to learn this. In the first phase, you're selling a dream and you're selling leadership. I thought that you had to have a plan that everyone would believe, where you, you knew the path. I've learned nobody believed it at all. All the people who came to work for me, all the people who invested have told me over and over again, you know, the people who came to work for me, said, ah, we figure we give it five years and see if it were, probably fail, we'd go find another job. You need a plausible plan, but most importantly, you need a dream that matters. And you need to demonstrate that you have the capability to achieve that dream. And you need to make progress so that you can get ready to take the next step in financing. In the early stage, no one expects you to get everything right or to have all the answers, as long as they know you're capable of answering them in due course. It's almost like they would look at the idea of Enlorum and say, you know, I don't know if this is going to work, but it's an idea I can get behind and it's worth me putting money toward it. Yep. There are all kinds of organizations with significant self-interest, patient advocacy groups who've come on board. If we get a directed donation to focus on something like a particular mutation or target, we also require that they make a general donation so that not only is that money helping us build infrastructure for everybody, but we also can look people in the face and say, yes, we're, we're giving this a higher priority. But the benefit is that we have more to spend on everyone else. And, and that's where the mission is compelling. Each of these patients self-identify. We're blinded at the outset, but almost all of our patients self-identify. And these are incredibly human, poignant, terrible stories. I fully expected people to respond. I just didn't expect the amount of applications we'd get, scale of the positive response in terms of financing. The applications that have come in have exceeded your expectations by, a, I think, a wide degree. Certainly as an observer, I thought, okay, well, let's see how many programs they can get going. I didn't think that there'd be this many applications either. What's your total at now for applications? I think we're over 210 applications and accepted about not, maybe not quite 100. In the last year, we filed eight INDs, if you can imagine that, with three different divisions of the FDA. We expect to file two to three more this year. And if I can raise the money, I think I'm going to be able to and need to. I hope next year we can take that up to at least 15 INDs, maybe 20. Wow. I mean, I, I have to get the money to do that. The only thing stopping us now is just how many INDs can we afford to do? That's the hard thing in this because, you know, I know that when I'm not working on a target, I'm dooming a patient. But it's the discipline of, that you have to exercise. I had this question. I, I don't actually know how this works. Is every IND related to one program? And yes. only one program. Yes. Every person is different. Yeah. Right? And and we now know, we now have a lot of data saying if you've had the exact same mutation, you will not have the same symptoms. Share some, but you will not. And so the phenotype of the patient is the critical determination of whether the risk benefit is justified. It is changing the world one patient at a time. Now, when we get a repeat mutation, we can reference all the work that we did in the previous IND, but it still has to be considered in the context of the needs of the patient. We, we love repeat mutations because we basically can treat the next two, three basically for free because we will have had to made enough drug to treat several patients for life. And we are seeing quite a number of repeat mutations and meaningful differences in phenotype across the board. 
there's sort of two things that are happening here at Enlorm. One is you have a patient come in. Enlorm looks at the patient and says, we want to try to figure out what's going on with you. And if we can, we're going to try to fix it. That's for the patient. But you're also, by doing that, gathering information on perhaps some yet unseen, unmet patient who also will come along with a similar mutation. Maybe just a handful in the world, but you may find that patient as well. So that's sort of like you're building a database based off the current patient for the future patient that you may find. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. But before I get to that, I want to talk about pioneer patients. The pioneer patients I would define as those patients who are the first to be treated. Think about a pioneer patient and family and the fact that they are accepting risk that's unparalleled in the history of drug development. Before you ever see a patient, you typically have done decade, two decades of animal work. You've done a dose response in normal volunteers, and then you start treating your first patient. Here, our pioneers have to be willing to accept the risk of a new medicine that, for which we have vastly less information. I have seen in some patient communities some behavior that really disappointed me, where they seem to be upset that a patient other than the one they love was treated and didn't understand the value of treating one patient, which I'll get to. But more importantly, they didn't understand what a sacrifice the patient and family are making to be the first. That also reduces then the risk of any patients who come forward with a similar mutation or, or the same mutation. I've come to particularly admire our pioneer patients and families. I'm going to spend meaningful time talking about that at our annual meeting. The real return on investment at Enlorum will be knowledge. These patients are unique experiments of nature. You know, in science, what you try to do is introduce one variable. Then you can run your experiments, right? Here, we have patients who have a single causative variable, a mutation that we can identify and characterize, that we can then ask, how do they differ from the others with the same mutation and why? And then we can, if we have effective therapy, we can watch the reverse ontogeny of what happened, which is a progression from a healthy state to this catastrophically disease state. What we're already learning is amazing, but what we're going to learn will change everything. It will change the way we think about health and disease altogether. And it will help every single human being in the world because eventually, unless you get in a car accident or some other acute death, you're going to have a health problem. You look at the group of patients who have the same name disease, they're first in line for the safety knowledge and for the knowledge about the disease process. They're first. They should be honoring pioneer patients and families. That doesn't seem to be happening today. And I'm going to try to encourage people to look at it differently. This vast database that Enlorm's crewing here, what happens to it? How are you distributing that? Is there a central database that people can look at? How is it being used? No, there's no central database that people can get access to because I don't think that would be helpful. But we now have, I think, the largest database where detailed phenotype, detailed genotype, are coupled in a patient-identifiable way. Certainly, it's the first database for the most extraordinarily rare mutation. We're analyzing that, and you know, we just submitted a manuscript. We did a data cutoff in January of 23 when we had it processed 173 patients. That information, I think, is unbelievably valuable, and it's the manuscript under review in a peer-reviewed journal because that's where science must be published. And we're presenting it in all of our presentations, and so. Anyone who wants to begin to learn anything about 
these unique, valuable experiments of nature, they're able to see what we see. What you want is access to information analyzed so that no matter what you're training, is you can digest it and understand it and take value from it. I think over time, we would like to see a central database, but only if the provenance of each ASO in that central database is known and it meets the minimum criteria for what should result in an optimal ASO. I mean, there's a ton of work left to do. After all, we're only four years into this. There's a lot more to do and we've got the infrastructure in place. We now need to expand our reach and within the context of what our funding supports and train others so that we can export the NLAR model so that others can provide quality ASOs and more patients can be treated. That's another beauty of the simplicity of this. There's no need to own anything. The whole idea here is to see more of these patients and families given hope and help with high quality ASOs. And so we're working on ways to export what we know to others, uh, to put them in business. They can make ASOs for the patients who make their way to them. As you said, you're exporting it. But have you taken any criticism for not just making some sort of central database that anybody can go through at a moment's notice? We've had a strange criticism that I think was lodged principally as a smokescreen for a failure to make a good ASO about secrecy. And we've published more papers than anyone else, publishing as rapidly as we can, and we're providing all the information we can to people. You know, we'll make our data anytime someone wants access to it. If they're qualified to look at the information, I mean, there's very little point in having someone who doesn't know what a chemical is pour through an enormous database. Mm. It's available to any regulatory agency that would want it. It's available to any IRB or anything else. We're extraordinarily transparent. What's really important, we've provided great transparency about what is required to identify an optimal ASO and tried to warn people that if you cut corners on that, you're likely to get a bad ASO. And a bad ASO, like any other drug, that's not a good thing. We've been criticized by some for secrecy, which is nonsense. There's one gatekeeper, and that is you have to come ask for it. We'll share it with you, but you got to come ask is what you're saying. Yeah, but more importantly, we are analyzing the data. We're encouraging our investigators to publish case reports which is where the real information resides. We're sharing everything we can as quickly as we can, including our first real data analysis. I think we've published now eight papers already. This will be the ninth. There's a case report going in for one of our patients, and there's a second one being written. So all that information is going to be out in the right way, in the way science is meant to be done, which is that it doesn't make the light of day until it's been reviewed aggressively by peer review to assure that it's high quality. So you've had 200 applications, and you're working on this paper that looks at 173 of those. I'm assuming that there are people who come in And you've looked at the application and said, we can't help. We either can't figure out what the mutation is. I don't know. But are there people that you have had to turn away? Sure. About half. Actually, it's remarkable to me. I thought our acceptance rate would be about 10%, but it's about 50%. And I think there's some pre-selection bias that's going on. People you know, have a reasonable understanding of what antisense can do, though they don't understand its flexibility as we do. So about half the patients are in a position where we can't help them. That can be because the prevalence is way too high, and we think a commercial solution is a better solution for that. If you're missing a gene, we can't fix that. Or it can be because there's not enough known about the mutation or the molecular pathologic causes of the disease. Or sometimes it's because we don't have a clear opportunity to treat a problem that would matter to the patient. 
we cannot treat the trivial. We have to be confident that if we fix an issue that we hope to fix, that it will make a difference in the patient and family's lives. No, those are tough decisions and they're risk-benefit decisions that require real experience with the technology and with the challenges of putting new medicines in patients. There's a reason that very few people do that. And there's a reason a lot of failure happens because it's really hard. I, I want to switch and talk about the colloquium for a second. As you said, you're four years into this and this is the first in-person meeting that you're having about this. The question is, why have an in-person meeting? You're coming all the way from the West Coast over the East Coast for it. What do you hope to gain from it? First of all, I want to see the patients and families. I mean, that's that's a wonderful thing. I mean, for me, it's like returning to the practice of medicine. It's just wonderful. And second, I think information transfer is better in person. And there'll be many more opportunities for people to ask questions, talk to one another. And in addition, it's another step toward creating a community for these patients. These are isolated patients. They have no one to talk to, nowhere to go. Podcast series we've done has made a big difference, and I'm pleased with the response. But I think an in-person meeting is a vastly more efficient information transfer process. And it will allow patients, investigators, and Lorem people to interact in more natural and social environments. You know, we'll be having plenty of people on the Zoom who can't make it. That's great. We're thrilled with that. But I think the people who get the most value will be the people who actually come on site. So the majority takes place on, on one day on the 12th. Can you just tell me what is planned for that day? We have a reception the night before. Meeting will open, but will be opened by Chris Viebacher, the CEO of Biogen, who will introduce the colloquium and talk briefly about why Biogen is supporting it. And then I'll give a sort of soup to nuts opening. Here's the mission. Here's our process. Here's the pipeline. Here's what we've accomplished. Here's what we're learning. I'll spend some time talking about pioneer patients and their extraordinary sacrifices for the betterment of all. Talk about return on investment. That's, I think that's a question I've been asked, and I, I have really solid answers for that. Probably spend a little bit more time talking about how sort of now beginning to introduce the actual plan I have for sustainability. Really focus attention on reforms that I want everyone to get behind. You can think of that as an omnibus sort of, here's what's going on. That sets the day. Lay the land almost. Mm -hmm. And then individual NLORM senior people explode some of those steps into a lot more detail so that people can really understand how the process goes, why it may take some time if you have this or that problem and that kind of thing. Uh, and then lots of different panels that involve both treating physicians, scientists, patients, parents, all of that, so that all voices are heard and collected in a single place in a single day. And opportunity for us to thank our patients and our donors and our partners for the privilege of being able to do what we are doing. It's a privilege and we want to thank everyone for it. Yeah. All right. I have one question left for you. I've been thinking about this for two days myself. I cannot even perchance have an answer, but I think that you've probably thought about it. If you're a drug developer or a researcher or a company for that matter, looking at health, you make these decisions and one of them might be, okay, we're going to look at something like breast cancer. And if we are able to find a cure for breast cancer, we may save millions of lives. And you and I have talked before about the value of a drug, that if you're a physician and you see a patient, it's a very intimate thing. You see a patient, you try to help them, and you probably do, and that's a rewarding thing. But a drug can help thousands, sometimes millions of people if you create the right drug. 
Now you've done both in your life. You've been a physician. You ran ISIS slash Ionis for a long time. And you did create drugs at Ionis that helped, th- I mean, Spinraza has helped tens of thousands of children and it's been an amazing drug. But what you're doing now is almost the opposite of that. And it's back to the individual. So the question becomes like, how is time best spent? Is it best spent on something that may help vast majority of people? Or maybe how you know you spend your time on helping one person who has no place else to go? And that's probably is an existential question that you you have wrangled with. I'm wondering how you've thought about it. The reason I got into the industry is the leverage of a drug. I mean, I could see 10,000 patients and make a difference in those lives, but I could make a drug and I could change the lives of millions, not just of people who are alive today, but people who are alive long after I came online. That's high leverage and it's hard. And I like doing things that are complicated and hard and technically challenging. But it is also our obligation to hijack a phrase, leave no patient behind. I had a technology that could take a group of patients for which the healthcare system was not created. It's not a criticism of the healthcare system. We didn't know these patients existed, right? Mm -hmm. Who are left behind and suffer horribly. I think of it as high leverage just in a different way. Think of it as changing the world one patient at a time and taking advantage of a source of experimental information that is truly unique was not available to us until just now. For thousands of years, people have tried to help sick people. We've never in the entire history of therapeutics had an opportunity like this with the quality of information we can generate that could help then millions. So for me, it's the privilege of treating the individual a commitment to leave no patients behind, plus the leverage that comes from the knowledge to help all. Mm. I, I can't imagine anything that makes more sense for me to do right now, given the technology we created. I, it's where the highest value I can contribute to patients is today, because they're the people who are left behind. And these mutations kill patients, but they destroy family. So it's not just a patient, it's a family. And it's not just one patient, one family, it's a hundred and it will be thousands. And it's not just that, it's the knowledge that will affect in the future billions. I mean, that's really high leverage, Brady. Yeah, that's a good answer. Thoughtful answer. Listen, I thought about uh, it before I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Included, including trying trying to see if there was any way I could avoid doing this. (laughs) And you couldn't, yeah. Uh, I'm glad I didn't find a a way out. Well, that's it for me. I really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot, Stan. It's been a great pleasure talking. Congratulations on, on your new role and great appreciation for your commitment to balance understanding and reporting of what people who do complex things do, I think it's made a tremendous difference in our space anyway. Thank you. Hey, folks, we're going to wrap this up. We hope to see you in Boston. And if not in Boston, by Zoom, I think you'll find the meeting deeply rewarding. Thank you. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorum as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorum comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorum or today's episode, visit enlorum.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorum.org. 
Search Ann Lorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.